I've spoken a few times, um, or I've mentioned I'm excited about where we're at in Isaiah, um, and I realize um, that might be uh, misinterpreted. Um, So, like, uh, we're getting towards the end of Isaiah, um, and we're actually going to complete Isaiah in the next... uh, um, next month or so, okay? Um, so when I say I'm exa- excited for where we're at in Isaiah, it's not that I'm, I'm tired of Isaiah, per se, um, or it's not that like I'm, I'm ready to do something else. Um, it's like when you're reading a good book and you finally get to the climactic part, right? You get to the climax and, uh, and you just can't put it down. Have you ever had a book like that where um, I remember at, um, at work once, like I had a book that I was just really into and it's getting towards the climax and I had it sitting out next to me on my desk and I'd like, you know, write a line of code and then wait for it to, uh, to process. And I'd read my book and then it'd finish. I'd go and just read it, you know, a little bit at a time. I remember um, driving in the car and like having a book next to me and had stoplights pulling out and reading it. Um, don't do that. Kids, my kids don't do that. Um, but that's what I'm talking about. We're actually coming towards the climax of Isaiah, like the really exciting part uh, of Isaiah. And so we're actually here in a passage that is one of the most famous passages in Isaiah, all right? Um, the, the suffering servant. Um, and if, if you didn't know anything else about Isaiah, you probably have heard at least this passage. But um, we need some background information before we jump into it, okay? Like, like any good, um, good sequel, like any TV show, if you jump in midway, I was talking to my kids about this, like, like what are some movies that you can't just jump into? And we're, we're talking, my kids are obviously big Marvel fans. They're like, oh yeah, Infinity War. Like how many movies do you have to watch before you're actually ready to go watch Infinity War, right? You you have to see like the Iron Man, at least one of the Iron Man movies, right? Um, you should probably watch um, some of the other Avengers movies, uh, or it won't make sense. The Doctor Strange stuff um, that won't make any sense at all unless you've seen Doctor Strange. The Guardians of the Galaxy, you need at least one of those movies under your belt, and and there, I think there's like 19 or 20 movies that all kind of merge into Infinity War. You can't just step in and start watching it because um, have you ever done that with somebody who like, you, like you're bringing them into something you like? Um, like I remember watching an episode of The Office with my kids and um, it, was, it was like uh, episode, it's like the third season and it's where um, Ryan comes back after he's kind of bankrupted the company and everything. And Kevin makes the joke like, ha, you're fired guy. And I tried to explain like, okay, well, here's the fire guy joke and here's why that's funny. And it just didn't work, okay? Like they didn't get it, they didn't find it funny because they didn't, they didn't see the fire guy episode, right? Um, so like a movie sequel, we, we actually need some background information in order for this to make sense. Like it's a beautiful passage and there's beautiful poetry involved. Um, but it's not going to make sense unless you have some background information. Um, and we're going to get the richness out of it once we process uh, what we know so far. Okay, so, so far in the story, let me, here's, here's our recap before we jump into this episode, right? Um, and let, we're going to go back to the beginning, actually. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, okay? In the beginning, God created everything good. He created Adam and Eve, and they were created to fellowship with him and, and be in his presence and enjoy his perfect rule over creation, right? That was how everything was created. And then what happened? Sin came in, and it broke fellowship with God, 
It broke God's perfect rule over creation, and Adam and Eve were exiled. Okay? They are exiled from the presence of God. They are exiled from the perfect rule of God over creation. Okay? So what I want you to start out with is sin leads to exile. Sin leads to exile. Then God's going to start this rescue mission where God's going to provide forgiveness of sins. And if sin means exile, then forgiveness of sins must mean return from exile. Okay? So forgiveness of sins is going to undo all of the problems of exile. We're going to go back to having fellowship with God. We're going back to enjoying the presence of God. We're going back to the perfect rule of God. Okay? If sin means exile, then forgiveness of sins means return from exile. But how is God going to do that? This is really important. How is God going to um, provide forgiveness of sins? Well, we start out with Abraham. God picks one man and says, through you, I'm going to set up a people who are going to, who are going to be my presence of God over the world. Okay, So you are going to be like a city on a hill. You are going to be a nation of light that brings my presence to the whole world. So how am I going to be in your presence if you are a sinful people? Well, we get to Moses. God provides this exodus from oppression. And then he sets up this law where he says, here is how you can be in my presence without being consumed. I want to give you my presence, but I don't want to kill you while I do that. If I offer you my presence, it will destroy you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have, uh, we're going to have the law. We're going to have sacrifices. And, and especially, we're going to have this day of atonement. And I encourage you, uh, if, if you have the time, go back and look at uh, the Bible Project videos where they talk about Leviticus and the day of atonement. Um, and it's just really fascinating, all the pictures that are in there. There's, there's one goat that they, they, the, the priest comes and puts his hands and lays the sin of the people on the goat. And then they send it off into the wilderness. And it's like their sins are being carried away into the wilderness. It's the scapegoat. Okay. The other one, they sacrifice and they take the blood. And what do they do? They go into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and they sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And the blood is covering their sins for a year so that they can continue to enjoy the presence of God. Okay? So their sins are being removed from them. Their sins are effectively being sent into exile in the wilderness. And their sins are covered by the blood of the sacrifice. Okay, so here is how God is going to mediate his presence to his people without destroying them. Then what? We go through the, the story of Israel, we get to David. All right? and, and if you're familiar with Old Testament history, we're basically re rehearsing the covenants that exist in the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and now the Davidic covenant. There's going to be a king, an anointed one, from the line of David, who will one day rule over God's people forever. You're going to have a good king and a good ruler who will rule over you forever. All right. God's people rebel. They don't, they don't follow his law. They don't look to him for forgiveness of sins. And instead of the sins being borne by the scapegoat, instead of their sins being covered by the blood on the mercy seat, the people of Israel are left to bear the weight of their own sins. 
right? We saw that in Isaiah. They're bearing the weight of their own sins. And what does sin mean? Bearing the weight of your own sin means exile. So the people are taken out of their land and they're placed into exile in Babylon. And that's where we are historically in this book. This is who the author of these passages is talking about. They're in exile in Babylon. Um, They've rebelled. They're bearing the weight of their own sin. And so then they are exiled. Okay, so now, sin means exile. Forgiveness of sins must mean return from exile. So when we talk, we start going through and start talking about righteousness and, and sins being forgiven and stuff like that, what you have to keep in mind is the people are, are not just, it's not just like the nation, the literal nation of Israel that is living in exile. It is the entire world is in exile from the presence of God. The entire world is in exile from the good and perfect rule of their creator. Okay, so we need someone that's going to come and rescue us. So our our big idea today is rescue from exile happens in an unexpected way from an unexpected servant. Rescue from exile happens in an unexpected way from an unexpected servant. All right, so, so that's kind of the, the big, broad leading up to this story. That's the, the background. That's like the 19 movies you have to watch before you get into Infinity War. Okay, now, here's where we're at now. We're, we're in, um, some people call this, I was, I was reading N.T. Wright on this. He calls this, this section uh, Second Isaiah. He, he has uh, first Isaiah, which is 1 through 39. Then he has second Isaiah. And it's not just him. Um, I mentioned uh, a while ago that uh, Brueggemann, one of the commentaries we read, he breaks it apart that way, 1 through 39 and then 40 through 66. Um, but we have first Isaiah, we have second Isaiah. So second Isaiah starts at chapter 40, and it's this announcement of hope. We have this trial language over and over, like, like it's a court case. Like we're sitting in a court and there's a judge who's saying, come and testify. Can your idols do this? Can your idols measure the ocean? Can your idols push up the mountains? Can your idols do this or that? And Israel is still rebellious. And so we get to chapter 49, and we are introduced to this character called the servant, and so God is going to do something new through this servant. And, and at first, it's kind of nebulous. It's a little bit obscure. We're introduced to this character, and he's going to do something really great, um, but we're not, we're not filled in with details. In Isaiah 15, or 49, um, we get this, the servant is going to announce good news and be a light to the nations. That's 49 uh, verse 6. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And then we go into 50. How's he going to be a light to the nations? And there's this this hint at suffering. The Lord God has opened my ear. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So this servant is going to be a light to the nations, but there's this hint that he's going to suffer. And we don't know what the suffering is about. We don't know why he's suffering yet. And then we get to 52. And this is what Johnny preached last week. I would encourage you, if you didn't hear that, go back and listen to it. It was so encouraging. But 52, that section ends with this announcement of good news. So 49, we had this announcement of good news. The servant will announce good news, be a light to the nations. And then there's this hint at suffering. 
And then we get to 52. There's this announcement of good news. How beautiful, verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes to salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. There's this announcement of good news. And then what follows that announcement of good news? There's another prediction of suffering. But this time, it's so much more specific. This time, he's actually going to explain, here's what the suffering is about. Here's what the suffering is going to accomplish. So let's walk through this passage now. Um, that's all the backstory. That's what you need to understand leading up to it. We're going to start in verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, shall be exalted. So he'll act wise. What, what this is actually saying um, in, in, in the Hebrew is he's in his wisdom, he's going to prosper. Okay? So he is going to be in some way successful. He shall be high, lifted up, and exalted. So the, so the author here is using three synonyms. Like he's going to be high, he's going to be lifted up, he's going to be exalted. There's this threefold exaltation happening here. All right. So he starts off with that. The good news that the servant will be prosperous and successful. He'll be high, lifted up, and exalted. <clears throat> but then we're going to be surprised a little bit. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and is formed beyond that of the children of mankind. All right? um, people are, uh, the word here, the better word here is appalled. The people were astonished or appalled at the servant. His figure is so disfigured that people not only question whether he's actually the servant, but they wonder if he's even human. Okay, That's what it's saying here. His form is beyond that of the children of mankind. He doesn't even look human at this point. The suffering that he's going to go through is going to reduce him to the point where you look at him and, and, and you're appalled. Like, it's hard to look in his face, all right? Um, and maybe you've been in situations like, I remember watching a, a movie, uh, um, Elysium, which is, it, I think uh, Blomkamp was trying to do a, a gospel message, and it was almost too on the nose, um, where this, this one unexpected guy goes to Elysium, and through his death, everybody gets to be citizens of Elysium and enjoy all the blessings of this kingdom. Um, <clears throat> There's Jesus figures, and then like it's like, let me be obvious about it. But in one in one of the in one of the scenes, um, it's it's a fairly violent movie. Um, but a guy gets his face blown off, uh, and you see it, um, and and like it's it's that appalling. Like, oh, he doesn't even look human at this point. Okay, this is this is what it's describing. I know that's that's gross. This is what it's just describing him as. Like people not only question whether he's the servant, they wonder is he even human at this point. That's the kind of suffering he's going to go through. Verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. That which they have not heard they understand. Basically the idea here is the work of the servant is going to be a global work. It's not going to be restricted just to national Israel. It's going to be a work that has repercussions around the world. He will sprinkle many nations. And then we get to the passage that Ella read for us this morning. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Basically, this is a rhetorical question, and the answer um, is supposed to be nobody's believed us. Nobody is believing us. Nobody's believing what they heard from us. 
Nobody's believing what's been revealed to them. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We've seen this arm of the Lord over and over in different places. And here the arm of the Lord is actually God himself who is going to come and take on the form of a servant. He's going to reveal himself to his people. Why do people not believe? Why do people reject the arm of the Lord being revealed? Well, because, verse 2, because he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. All right? He was not... Um, he was not the kind of person that you look at and say, that's the guy, all right? They had kings like that, right? King Saul, their first king, was this impressive man, this warrior. He stood head and shoulders above everybody else. And to look at him, you think, man, that's a leader, right? What does it say here? It's, it's almost cruel. Like, he's, he's not a good-looking guy, all right? Um, Isaiah here is describing the servant that's going to come and basically telling us, to look at him, eh. you know, I don't, I don't know if you've ever had people say stuff, or you, you, you've heard these backhanded comments. He's not very good looking, but he's a good leader, right? Uh, that's what he's talking about. Like, you wouldn't look at him and say, this is the guy. This is the Messiah. He was a relatively unattractive man with nothing about him that would suggest leadership or kingliness. He's, he, he, uh, he grew up here like a young plant. In other words, he grew up in an earthly environment. Okay, so here's what's weird. Um, the arm of the Lord, Yahweh, is being revealed. Um, Yahweh himself is revealing himself to his people. But how is he doing it? Through a servant that grows up on earth. Okay? This is kind of unexpected. It's not this theophany. It's not like the angel of the Lord coming down and God revealing himself like he did in a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, or Mount Sinai is lit up with these fireworks like it was for Israel. It's he's going to grow up like a kid on earth. No one would expect this. He had nothing special about him. And how did people treat him? Verse 3, he was despised. He was rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. People shunned him. They hid their faces from him. They didn't want to be associated with him. Over and over and over, his life is a life of rejection. All right? Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was not just suffering on his own behalf. The suffering that he's going to go through, like it's talking about there's this suffering where people are just going to reject him. But there's an element of suffering that is not his own suffering. It is him taking up suffering on our behalf, on his people's behalf. Okay? So this is, there's, there's suffering that you go through just because of, you know, who you are. Maybe it, and, and maybe it's like your fault. Maybe you did something stupid and you're suffering because of it, right? Like everything happens for a reason, but sometimes the reason is that you did something really dumb, right? There's suffering that is just incidental. Like it's, it's not necessarily any, but you could say it's God's fault. And that, that could be like medical suffering. Like you, you suffer with a disease or cancer or, or whatever it is. It's not necessarily your fault. 
But then there's also suffering that you willfully enter into on behalf of other people. Like you could shield yourself from some suffering. We talk about this. My, my wife and I get to do um, uh, foster training for, for foster parents. We get to go, um, the county pays us to go and talk about our experience with, with foster care. Um, I actually get to get up and tell them how my faith informs how we, you know, we deal with this. Um, but what we tell them is you are, you are willfully entering into suffering. And that suffering doesn't really have anything to do with you, but you're taking it on yourself. Right? That's what we're talking about here. He was not just suffering on his own behalf, though there was some of that. He took up suffering. He willfully entered into somebody else's suffering. And what's the result? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we were healed. Literally, like the, the word here for wounded or pierced, um, everywhere else it's a fatal blow. Okay? It's like you are being run through. And we know, we know the story of the cross that he was pierced. You are, you are pierced fatally. You have a fatal wound for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastise upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The peace punishment was laid on him. There is a punishment that will bring peace with God. And remember, he's talking to a people that are in exile, that are currently enemies of God, that are outside of the presence of God and outside of the perfect rule of God. And what is he saying? There is a punishment that brings peace and somebody else is going to have to pay it for you. This servant is going to come and there's a chastisement, there's a punishment that will bring peace and the wounds that he endures will provide healing. The solution to exile, the solution to forgiveness of sins is accomplished by this servant going through suffering on our behalf and this suffering means death. Verse 6. What do, what do we bring to this? What do we bring to the gospel? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And so what does God do? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're like sheep that are just mindlessly going astray. Mindlessly wandering away from our shepherd. The servant suffers the punishment for that on our behalf. And over and over again, Jesus talks about being that shepherd who goes out and finds his sheep and brings them back. What kind of shepherd would, would leave the 99 and go and find the one that's lost and bring them back? Jesus never specifically references Isaiah 53. But if you study the life of Jesus, it's all over the place. We're like sheep. We've gone astray. We are the one sheep that is wandering away out into the dangerous world and the shepherd is going to suffer the penalty that it takes to bring us back into the fold. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it goes on um, over and over again explaining this. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. When Jesus went, um, when, the, when the servant goes, he is not defending himself. He is not demonstrating his power. I love 
I've, I've always wanted somebody to, to write a, a play or a movie about Jesus and Pilate. Just that interaction. Like, I would, I would absolutely watch that. Um, because here is Jesus, and everything he does is demonstrating just this internal power that he's keeping in check. And Pilate over and over again, like, don't you know I have the power to release you? You don't have any power. The only power you have is given to you by my father. And Pilate walks away like, I got to figure out how to get rid of this guy. I, I, I can't be involved in this. If you read it, it sounds like Pilate is really, really scared in this situation. He doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't defend himself. He's like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Here's a prediction that Jesus would be buried in a common grave that belonged to a rich man. All right? The servant, how do you know he's the servant? He's going to be buried in a common grave that belonged to a rich man. He's not going to have this special burial. He's not going to have like some, some pyramid to, to remember him by. He's going to have a common grave that he borrows from a rich man. He'd done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Um, he's paying this penalty. He doesn't deserve what he gets. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And here in verse 10, we've got a little sandwich statement. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And at the end of verse 10, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. Then what? He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Okay, um, we, we need to step out of our 21st century mindset for a minute, um, our, our 21st century understanding of Christianity, because we have this full-fleshed doctrine of uh, resurrection, okay? We all kind of understand something about resurrection. Um, even if we don't believe in it, we at least understand um, that Jesus was going, Jesus rose again, at least the Bible teaches that Jesus rose again, Right? And, and we have this belief that we will one day rise again. Um, and, and some of us disagree about how that's going to work. And is there going to be a rapture? Is that how, what does it look like? Um, but we understand the idea of resurrection. Okay? If we go backwards to Isaiah's time, there's not this full-fleshed understanding of resurrection. Okay? Nobody yet had risen from the dead except for some weird edge cases where Elijah falls in, or maybe it was Elisha falls into a grave, and, and there was a time where Elijah raised a child's son. But there's not this full-fledged idea that, that God will raise all his people again. There's hints at it. There's, there's some, um, uh, some inclinations toward it. But we haven't quite developed it yet. So when we hear about the servant going to death, there's supposed to be some finality to it, okay? The servant goes to death and rescues his people, that's it. But what does it say? It goes on, when his soul makes an offering for sin, then what? He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He's going to go to death, but that's not where it stops. 
He's going to then see his offspring. He's going to have his days prolonged. And then what? Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied after his death. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He's going to make intercession for the very people that were killing him. And he's going to get a portion with the many. He's going to get the spoil with the strong after his death. All right? So Isaiah here sees the continuation of this servant beyond his death. He doesn't get into this this full-fledged doctrine of resurrection. But what he's telling us is there's going to be a death, and then God's going to continue using his servant. And the servant is going to get the offspring. The servant is going to get the spoils. The servant is going to get a portion with the many. And his death is going to, what, is going to be what, um, what accounts us righteous, right? Verse 11, um, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. All right. That's the passage. It, it goes on in 54 and 55. I'm, I'm, I'm going to just touch on these really quick. We got a week behind because we had a snow day. Um, so I'm going to catch us up really quick because 54, if you go through 54, the result of all this, the result of the suffering servant is an eternal covenant of peace. If you have an ESV Bible, you probably see that header over 54, the eternal covenant of peace. There is going to be a new covenant that the servant enacts which is a covenant of peace with God. The result of that at the end of the chapter, verse, uh, verse 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. He's talking about he's going to, um, he's going to gather his people and it's going to be like a woman who is barren who is all of a sudden bringing forth children. God is going to gather his people like children And what's going to be true about them? No weapon that's fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of what? What does he call us? The servants of the Lord. Do you see that? We have this servant who goes through suffering in order to account us righteous. That results in this eternal covenant of peace where God is going to bring us as children into this new covenant. And then what does he call us? Because of the work that the servant has done, now we are called the servants of God. He gives us this vocation now that's based on this identity of the servant. I'm not going to go too far into it. I actually asked Rob for our brunch service to spend some time talking about our servant identity, right? We have these, these four identities. If you went through Soul of Basics, you probably learned these. I asked Rob during our brunch service briefly, I promise, um, to talk about that servant identity. So I don't want to, I don't want to steal his thunder here. But I want to point out that the servant does a work so that we can become sons and then he sends us out as servants. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And then 55, 
There's this call to new creation. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the water. I love this passage. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon And we get to the end of this chapter in 55, verse 12. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you will break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. What is, he, what is he picturing here? He's picturing the new creation where God revokes the curse that creation is groaning about. Creation is groaning, waiting for restoration, and God comes in and revokes that curse and delivers new creation. Okay? So 52 and 53, the servant comes and he suffers to account us righteous and bring forgiveness of sins, which means return from exile. That exile is from the presence of God and the perfect rule of God. So what's the result of the work of the servant? It is a new covenant where we are brought in as children and given the vocation of servants. And it is the new creation where everything will be restored to the perfect rule of God. That's our, I told this is a great passage, right? I, you, do you understand why we're excited about getting to this part in Isaiah? So what, what does it mean? I, I want to distill it a little bit. Um, the Messiah servant comes in a way that no one expects. Okay, so, so that's the first thing you need to get out of this, is that when you look at this servant, he's not going to be the one that you expect. He's not going to come in the way that you expect. And when we start reading through the New Testament, especially the Gospels, over and over and over again, Jesus is defying the expectations of the people. Are you going to set up the kingdom now? It's not for you to know. They want him to come and overthrow Rome. And when he says, I'm going to go and suffer, they don't immediately think of Isaiah 53. They think of the Davidic covenant and all of the, all of the stuff around the king who will free them from oppressors. And Peter says, no, they're not going to kill you. You can't die. Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan. The Messiah's servant comes in a way that no one expects. Secondly, righteousness is something that is accounted to us through the suffering of the servant. Okay? How do you achieve righteousness? How do you achieve forgiveness of your sins? All right? It's not through the law. It is not through the sacrificial system. It is not whatever religion you want to follow. Righteousness is accounted to us through the suffering of the servant. Third, the servant willingly enters into suffering on our behalf. The servant willingly enters into suffering on our behalf. He opened not his mouth. He didn't defend himself. I love the, the, the song from, um, uh, I'm going to forget their name now, uh, Ghost Ship, um, the Lion Man of Judah. 
Um, he, he opened not his mouth um, like a lion. If he had, then we would all be devoured, right? He had the power to rescue himself. He had the power. I love the passage in John where they come to get him and he's like, who are you looking for? So we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And they all go to the ground. Nobody took his life. He laid it down. The servant willingly enters into suffering on our behalf. Then last, the outflow of that suffering is a new covenant and a new creation. That God is going to create a new covenant for his people. And here's the key. Um, They didn't just need rescue from exile. Because if you read the history of Israel, God rescues them over and over and over and over and over again. Read the book of Judges, and it's really frustrating. Like, come on, guys. Figure this out. Over and over and over again. They get a king. It's like, maybe maybe they'll be okay now that they have a king. Nope. It's even worse. Over and over and over again, their sin separates them from God. They don't just need rescue from exile. They also need rescue from the possibility of exile, right? They need rescue from the threat of exile. They need to be restored to God in such a way that it will be perfect and permanent. But they didn't have the ability to do that on their own. The outflow of the suffering is this new covenant where now the old covenants are not rejected. They're not done away with. It's they're completely fulfilled in a specific person who is the servant who represents Israel. The outflow of the suffering is a new covenant. And then as a result of that new covenant, we get to new creation where God restores everything to his perfect rule. Okay. So why, why do we struggle to believe this? Uh, the first thing is, um, we don't really like this picture of a Messiah, okay? Um, we, we don't like uh, just un, this unattractive, um, unleader-like person who's going to come and rescue us. Even in our depictions of Jesus, we forget this, right? Like there was a, there was a Bible miniseries. Let me show you who they had as Jesus. This is Jesus. In the Bible miniseries that ran, I think, on, like on ABC or something, right? What what does it what does it say about him? Um, he was, uh, yeah, he has no form or comeliness or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Okay, um, here's smoldering Jesus, right? <laughs> He's got the smolder down. This is what we think. I mean, the 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 passion of the Christ was a little bit. I mean, Jim Caviezel is still, you know. Like, this is what we want when we think of a Messiah, right? We want attractive people. We want, we want people that look powerful. We want people that, that convey this certain charisma about him, right? We want Jim Caviezel. We want, I forget who the other guy was. He was, I think it was his first big break. Um, some archaeologists actually did some study in the area where Jesus lived, and they collected a bunch of skeletons, and they came up with this composite of, here's what the normal person in that time of Israel looked like. Um, and, and this is likely like what, what Jesus kind of looked like. And he was short. Like, that's, that's good news to some of us. Um, the average height was like between 5'1 and 5'4 for the men in this region at that time. 
Like, I'm 5'6", guys. <laughs> when he walks in the room, nobody looks at him like, like Saul was this impressive guy who stood head and shoulders above everybody else. When Jesus walked in, nobody would look at him and say, that's the guy. Let's go follow him. We don't like this picture of a Messiah. And in reality, we, we look for leaders that are flashy. Right? It's not just that we're, we're making movies about Jesus where he's this smoldering hunk. It's really that we look for leaders that are, that are flashy. We, we, we look to follow people that seem like they have everything together. Right? Um, we look to those kind of methods to build our church too. I remember reading an article um, about a guy who started a church in LA um, and, um, and trying to create this trendy church. Um, and his statement was, Instagram has built our church. And in his mind, like having that public persona, having that flashiness, that's what's going to accomplish things. We don't like this picture of a Messiah. We don't like the idea that, that, you know, unflashy, that unattractive, like that, the person who doesn't have the most charisma, we don't want that person for a leader. Secondly, uh, so we don't like this picture of a Messiah because we don't, we don't like it in leaders at all. Um, the second thing is we, we have this tendency to justify ourselves. We want to justify ourselves. I don't want to look outside of myself for justification. And over and over again, we, we fail um, and, and we try to get things right. And um, it's, there, there's a song I, I heard this morning. It's no surprise to me I am my own worst enemy, right? Because every now and then, you know, I, uh, <laughs> the, the song goes on and on about like, here's, here is the, my destructive behavior. And it's no surprise to me that I am my own worst enemy. I want, I want to get things right, but what happens? I am my own worst enemy when I try. I think Eminem is one of the best like, pop culture pictures of this. He sings in, in his song Monster about having this monster. Um, he says, I, um, I'm friends with the monster that's under my bed. Um, I have this monster inside of me. And then he gets to a verse where he says, I need an interventionist between me and this monster to save me from myself because the very thing that I love is killing me and I can't conquer it. Man, that could be a call to confession, right? Like we see it, we try to justify ourselves and over and over again, we disappoint ourselves and we say, man, I need help doing this. I need an interventionist. I need somebody to step in here. And the fact is Eminem even knows who it is. He sings in walk on water like I walk on water, but I'm, I ain't no Jesus. I walk on water, but only when it freezes. He knows who the perfect one is that he's supposed to turn to. And over and over again, he turns to himself. And at the end of the song, he says, I, you know, I'm still godlike. I wrote Stan. I wrote this. I wrote the best rap song. And he turns back to himself. We're the same way. We want to justify ourselves. We want to believe that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstrap, bootstraps. Part of it is just our American culture of individualism that I'm responsible for myself. We want to justify ourselves. And we continually get frustrated because we just can't measure up. The third way that we struggle to believe these things is we tend to organize our lives around avoiding suffering. Right? 
Our lives are generally um, organized to achieve the maximal comfort. That's the American dream, right? Like I have the big house. I have the nice neighborhood. I have the fancy car on a lease so I don't have to worry about maintenance and all of that, right? And if it breaks down, I don't have to worry about it. I am going to do my best to insulate myself from suffering as much as possible. There's, there's something weird we've, we've noticed with, uh, with foster care. It's very rare for an extremely wealthy person to do it. I don't know why that is. I'd love to study that a little bit more. Um, but we tend to organize our lives around avoiding suffering as opposed to entering into suffering. And last, we misunderstand the new covenant uh, and new creation promises that have been inaugurated. Um, We don't understand how the new covenant works. We don't understand how new creation works. Um, We either think that it's something that's a long way off that Jesus is someday going to bring and right now doesn't matter so much, right? Or we're too invested in right now and we become frustrated because we're told that Jesus is ruling and reigning as a king, but things still seem so broken. And every week we're reminded of the brokenness of the world. This past week, we had this horrible white supremacist violence in New Zealand where a man went and gunned down a couple mosques, killing 49 people. What in the world? God, help us. And sometimes it's tempting to say, God, what are you doing? Jesus, are you really ruling and reigning? And we misunderstand the new covenant and the new creation promises that have been inaugurated. We don't get that already, not yet. We don't get the tension. And so we we fall into this trap of either rejecting God and saying, well, if Jesus says he's in control and this stuff happens, then I don't want that kind of God. Or we completely believe that Jesus' rule and reign is completely future. That there is nothing present about the rule and reign of Christ. And both of those are these opposite ditches that we tend to fall into. So how is Jesus the hero of all this? How is Jesus the hero? Um, The first way that Jesus is the hero, Jesus brings the presence of God to his people through his suffering. The forgiveness of sins, the return from exile. Remember, return from exile doesn't just mean national Israel going from Babylon or Persia back to the country, the nation state, and the land of Palestine. That's not, what it, that's not the only thing that it meant, but that was involved. Return from exile means being restored into relationship with God, where his perfect rule and reign will one day absolutely rule, will be restored. So Jesus brings the presence of God to his people through his suffering. Secondly, Jesus enacts the new covenant in his blood and he inaugurates his kingdom. Like I said, Jesus never actually references Isaiah 53 specifically. Like there are passages uh, passages in Isaiah that he explicitly quotes. Like there's a scene where he gets up and he reads a portion of Isaiah about um, the, the prisoners being freed and the blind will see. And he, and he, he reads it out and then he, he folds up the scroll and then he sits down and he says, Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. All right. So there are passages in Isaiah that he explicitly quotes and, ref- and takes them to himself. 
He doesn't do that with Isaiah 53. But the whole structure of the gospel is arranged around Isaiah 52 and 53. In Matthew 20, there's this situation where his disciples think the kingdom is coming. And there's these two disciples that come to Jesus and they say, Hey, when you come in your glory, like when it's time, when you assume the Davidic throne, when you bring all of eschatology to its completion, can I sit on your right hand and my brother on your left? Can we be like your right hand men and will rule and reign from your side? That's what they thought was about to happen. And what does Jesus say? says, whoever would be great among you must be what? Your servant. All right? And when he talks about being a servant, he is invoking the language of Isaiah. And here's how we know. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And here's what he understood about Isaiah 53. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He doesn't explicitly quote Isaiah 53, but it's right there for us. That the servant will suffer and the suffering will accomplish the ransom for many. Third, Jesus gives us the spirit to comfort us in our suffering. Okay, there's this understanding that if you follow Jesus, you will take up your cross and follow him. It's not an easy, and it's, it's so easy for us to minimize that. It's so easy for us to get a cross tattoo or a cross necklace. And it's like, I am taking up the cross. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a tattoo here, and then people ask me about my Christianity. It's not what it's talking about, although there's suffering involved in that, right? That's not what it's talking about. The cross for them was a means of oppression and execution. It would be like you hanging uh, a lynching noose around your neck. Saying, I am identifying with those who have suffered in this way. Right? It's about you stepping into suffering on another's behalf. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, Jesus was stepping into suffering on someone else's behalf. And so he says, here's what you have to do. When those disciples ask him, can we rule with you? Can you drink of the cup that I'm going to drink of? Yeah, you will. You will drink of that cup because you are going to suffer on behalf of other people for the sake of the kingdom. But we're not left alone in that. He gives us the spirit to comfort us in our suffering. He goes through suffering himself. And I love this. We, we don't want a leader who is above us, who doesn't understand. Like I, I don't want like a political leader who's never struggled and been broke. I don't want that. Right? I, I want somebody that can understand like being on, on WIC, living in government subsidized housing. Like it sucks. Like we were that we, we lived in this apartment that was government subsidized housing and it was everything that you'd expect. We were on WIC and, and we relied on the government to provide us food and it was it was shameful and embarrassing, right? I don't want a politician that, that's never had to deal with that. I don't want a leader who can't understand what I've suffered. Right? And so Jesus here is not sitting above us looking down and trying to empathize with us. Jesus is entering into the suffering and he's sympathizing with us. We're not alone in our suffering. We have somebody, we have a high priest who is acquainted with our grief. 
And he gives us a comforter as we go through that suffering. And last and most, most important, I guess, um, Jesus will return again to set all things right. Whatever you believe about the new covenant, whatever you believe about the new creation, hopefully we all agree that Jesus will come back. And we're excited for that. And we're awaiting that day. And in the middle of our brokenness, we can at least be encouraged that this is not forever. Like we are given the Spirit to help us endure the suffering of this time. But one day, one day, the serpent will be destroyed. Jesus will come back. He'll restore everything. Like we have the presence of God now, but we're still awaiting its full fulfillment. We're still awaiting the complete return from exile. Where all all of creation is placed under the perfect rule of God once again. Right? What does it say? You will go out in joy. You'll be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. That's what we're waiting for. And every week we get to be reminded. I, I, hope, I hope this doesn't just seem like rote tradition to you that we go back and we take the bread and the cup. Like what we're talking about here, this whole cosmic work of God to restore all things to himself, when Jesus wanted to explain that to his disciples, he didn't give them a theology lesson. He gave them a meal. He said, take this bread, take this cup, and do this so that you remember that I'm establishing a new covenant. Do this so you remember that I'm going to come again. So we go back and we take the bread and we dip it in the cup and we're reminded not just that there's a new covenant, that Jesus will return, but we're reminded what it took to accomplish the new covenant. The bread is my body broken for you. The, the, the wine is my blood shed for you. Here is the sign of that new covenant that I'm making, that you don't have to live in fear of exile from God anymore ever again. So let's pray. Let's go take that. Let's be reminded that Jesus is that servant who's accomplished this on our behalf. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Isaiah. We thank you for this passage. God, such a magnificent passage. God, we, we may have to come back to this passage to mine its depths. There's so much here. But most importantly, we know that the righteousness we have was given to us because you suffered on our behalf. God, I pray that we remember that today as we take the bread and the cup, remember what it cost uh, for us to receive that righteousness. Remember that we have been given the identity of servants to go out and take up our cross and follow you, to willingly enter into suffering, because that's the method that you've set up to establish your kingdom. God, so often we don't like that. So I pray that your spirit would rebuke us. I pray that your spirit would root out the idols that would prevent us from uh, taking up our crosses and following you. God, we love you. We thank you for the work of the servant. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.